I'd like for you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You recognize immediately that that is the great chapter on the excellence of love, the love chapter. You hear it read in uh, weddings, and, and uh, it's just a magnificent uh, piece of work. As a matter of fact, when I was uh, in college, uh, I got extra credit for memorizing the, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians and quoting it one day in an English class. And my English teacher uh, thought it had to be one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written. Happened to be the greatest time anybody ever quoted it, too, to be honest with you. <laughs> Is that your watch, Kevin? Is it going on? Huh? Your keys. Chuck Swindoll tells about uh, going out to visit the Bridgewater, Bridgewater Hospital for the criminally insane. It was a cold February day, dark and gray. And he said the wind chill factor was about zero and was just cutting through his overcoat as he got out of his car and headed up to that massive gate that was set between these great, in the midst of these great walls that were dirty and worn over the years. And he said the touch of that gate was as cold as the day, and he anticipated that on the inside he would, would he, he would find the same kind of reception. He said, I had a chill all the way to my bones. But on the inside of the gate he was met by this chaplain. He had gone there to the Bridgewater Hospital where the most violent and incorrigible people are housed and confined in order to find out how his church could minister to those men. And he said, I, I was met by this chaplain who had this tremendous smile, just a broad smile across his face. He said his hand was like a ham, and there was this warm shake and welcome, and his first words were, I love you, Chuck, for coming. I love you for caring. He said, what you're going to see today, a lot of what you're going to see is going to shock you. And everything you're going to see today is going to depress you. But I want you to know that this is my congregation and I love these men. He says, they went from one cell block to the next. And these men would come out and they met him, this loving man, this big old guy with this broad smile. He said some of them would embrace him and some of them would put their head on his shoulder and sob. He said this loving man would just kind of take each one of them aside and he would talk to them and he had a, he had a moment for every one of those men. And he said on the way home that, that, that afternoon, he said, God began to do a work in my heart. And he said, I became conscious that I had this veritable Grand Canyon in my heart. And this was called, this canyon was called Loveless Canyon. I wonder how many of you have that veritable loveless canyon in your heart. Now 1 Corinthians chapter 13 was not written, written in order to be analyzed. 
It was written for people like you and me who have a hard time saying, I love you without being embarrassed. It was written for those of us who have this loveless canyon in our heart. A.T. Robertson was right. He said it would, be a, it would be a pity to try to dissect 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse by verse. For what we need tonight is really not more information in our heads. We need some warmth in our hearts. And so we've come not primarily to find some new facts for our minds. We've come tonight to find some way to be changed so that there can be this kind of a warmth in us, this love. Now, I'm impressed by the way, you have your outline there, I'm impressed by the way Paul expresses himself. And he sets forth four conditions right at the very first, and then he finishes it off by, he finishes each one of them off by this one statement, and do not have love. He establishes four conditions, and then he says, and if I do not have love to each one of those. I want you to notice the four conditions. If I have the ability to speak in polished and impressive fashion. That was so important to that Greek culture, to that Greek world of which 1 Corinthians was a part, of which Corinth was a part. I mean, these folks were impressed by the, by the folks that could get up and, and, and go through these, uh, uh, make these great or, uh, orations, make these great speeches. They were impressed by folks who could communicate. He said, if I have the capacity to speak in the, in the language of the host of heavens so that when I speak, the host of heavens could understand what I'm saying, to be able to preach with polished in, in a polished fashion. If I have the ability or the gift of prophecy, that is, if I am able to tell the events of March 16 as, as easily as I am able to describe the events of March 9 on March 9, if I have the ability to speak the, and, and foretell the future, if I could tell you tonight what is going to happen next Sunday on all, on, 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 uh, throughout the day next Sunday, if I have that gift of prophecy, if I have this total unswerving faith so that I could just say to the mountains, be removed, I'm going to travel over in eastern Oklahoma, past that mountain range that's over there, and just had this unswerving faith that I could say to that mountain range, be removed, come back the next day, and it would be as flat as a West Texas farm. And if I gave myself, gave all of my possessions to the poor, and were willing to stand before a firing squad and give myself to martyrdom, what then, what would be the result of that if I did not have love? I mean, when you draw the bottom line, and I had all of these things, these four conditions were true in my life, and I did not have love, what would be the result? What would be true? Well, he said, when it comes to speaking, it'd be like a noisy gong. Uh, remember the symbol of the Orient, those two arms holding that big brass uh, uh, gong, you know, and, and you've heard it on, or on television, you know, and they go hit that gong. You remember the gong show? 
Now, I was a great gong show host, I just have to admit, you know, when the college students, but you know, right after I did that, we, we totally, we did away with the gong show around here, and I don't know why, but you know, you had a little guy in that old, those funny hats, you know, and if they got somebody on the gong show, you know, it's just terrible, you know, I mean, just, they're, they're, sing a song, it was absolutely horrendous, you know, they'd get up from the judge's bench, and they'd go over there and ring that gong, you know, boring, and everybody would laugh and snicker, you know. Suppose tonight you could speak in an eloquent fashion, and you could speak in the language that the heavenly host could understand. You know what it'd be in heaven? It'd be a gong. I got to thinking about that, you know. Sometimes we get up, we do our best in communicating and, and, and do our best in declaring the truth that we know to be true. And I just wonder if in heaven there isn't this gong because there's no love. And what if I give my, all of my possessions to the poor? And, and what does it get me? What am I? He said, I am zero. I am nothing. And, and what does it profit me? He says, it profits me nothing. Now, what if you went home today after the early service and you got, you just, you, you, God gave you the uh, capacity or the ability to sit down and just type out all of your achievements? You had this long legal-sized legal sheet of paper, and there was a, a, for each achievement there was one line, and you typed out all of your achievements. And between the morning service and this service, you had all of that typed out. And then something happened to you after this service, and you suddenly died. And you stood before God, and you brought that sheet of paper before Him, the great judge of heaven and earth. And, and, and you had not love in your life. You know what would be on that sheet of paper? Nothing. Now you let that drag through your mind a second. You let that come through your mind a moment that you go through life making all of these sacrifices and doing all of these good things and polishing all these gifts that are described in chapter 12 and you're exercising them faithfully in the church but there is no love there. When you stand before God, there's nothing on the page. That's pretty sobering. Now, the second division of this, and we're not going to try to dissect this, has its love's basic qualities. Now, what is this love like that he describes? Now, I want to do something a little bit different. I'm going to ask you, each one of you, if you will just bow your head. Would you do that for me and close your eyes a moment? I want you to enter into a closet tonight as best you can. Everybody's head is bowed. Everybody's eyes are closed. I want you to listen to verses 4 through 7 from another translation. Would you let me read that very slowly? I want you just to, just to think about it. Love is so patient and so kind. Love never boils with jealousy. It never boasts is never puffed with pride. It does not act with rudeness or insist upon its rights. It never gets provoked. It never harbors evil thoughts. 
is never glad when wrong is done, but always glad when truth prevails. It bears up under anything. It exercises faith in everything. It keeps up hope in everything. It gives us power to endure in anything. Now continue with your head bowed and your eye closed, eyes closed. I want you just to listen to the way you talk and look back upon your, your last week. How did you appear to the people around you? Is love the central theme of your life, which means seeking the highest good of the other person, doing everything you can to meet their need? Is the central theme of your life love? I want you to open your eyes and let your gaze fall on the first three words of verse 8. Love never fails. It has, it has an eternal endurance about it. Now what that looks like is that he's saying that love will never let you down. It's really not the right kind, that, that's not the best translation. It really means love never comes to an end. It is never terminated. It is never terminated. Now, he, be he begins to describe some things that are temporary. He says, for example, that prophecy is temporary. We're so impressed with someone who can predict the future. If somebody could walk into Durant, Oklahoma and predict the future, predict what is going to happen tomorrow and come true, and then tomorrow he predict what is going to happen the next day and come true, by the end of the week he'd be, a, he'd, be a, he'd be an instant success. He would be famous. He would gain all the notoriety of the world. And be every, he'd be on every television show. I mean, we're so impressed with prophecy. He said, Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. And whether there be knowledge, it shall be done away. In other words, what he's saying is that the things that impress us the most one of these days are going to be erased from the board and gone. They are temporary. The things that impress us the most are temporary. But the one thing, he said, that is permanent is love. He said, when that which is perfect is come... That which is in part, that which is imperfect or temporary, shall be done away. When the Lord Jesus returns, when the perfect comes to earth, then the thing that's going to attend that perfection is love because love is compatible with perfection. And he illustrates it like this. He said, when I was a child, I acted and thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Now, now be sure and note it. what he's doing here is he's establishing the fact that there are some things that last, some things are temporary, some things are permanent. Your childhood, your childishness, you put away. And then he said, it's like looking in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now the problem we have with that is that 
that what we have for mirrors now are not what they had back then. They, uh, our mirrors, you know, is like looking face to face. Their, their mirrors were like uh, looking, uh, most of them were brass and everything was distorted. As a matter of fact, the word dimly means, is, uh, the, that, that root word is the, where we get our word enigma, mystery, puzzle, riddle. Now you say there's so many things about this life that are, that are puzzling. They're riddles, you cannot understand them. You think you have all knowledge. There's so many riddles about life. Uh, we just went through one. I mean, the experience of this week has been one of the most difficult experiences I've ever been through. And, and I suppose that it gets more difficult every day, every time for me to to uh, participate in, in, in a time of, of sorrow and, and, and bury folks. But when it's your friend. And, and Ron was a friend from, to me. Um, we're the same age. He's, he's two months older than me. And, and I suppose that, that I spent more time with Ron Jenkins than just about anybody in this, this town. And so when I went through this experience with Ron and his family, let me tell you something. It, it, it was a I don't understand it. I don't understand why he did not live. I don't. It's, a, it's an enigma. It's a mystery to me. But I do know this, that when I step into glory, I'm going to see everything from the beginning to the end. It's all going to look different then. You know what's going to happen when you first step into glory? You know what you're going to, there's just going to be this sigh. You're just going to hear this, this big sigh. And people are going to say, I see it now and I understand it. And I've had people tell me, say, when I get to heaven, first thing I'm going to do is that I'm going to go up to, to Jesus and our God. I'm going to ask him why this happened. I'm going up to Elijah and I'm going to ask him why he did this. No, no, you're not. Because the moment you step into heaven, you're going to know why. You won't have to ask anybody. And they're going to be, there's this, all this, this enigma. There are these mysteries that are, that, are, that are present in this world, these riddles. It's like looking into a brass mirror and everything is distorted. We can't understand some of these things. But when we step into glory, it's all going to be clear. He said, I'm going to know fully just as I am known. That means, I don't mean, that doesn't mean we're going to have omniscience. It means that we're going to know with perfect knowledge. Somebody said, you think we'll know each other in heaven? Well, of course we will. We're going to know each other just like God knows us. Isn't that going to be great? We're going to know events just like God knows events. We're going to know experiences just like God knows experiences. And it's just going to be this one gigantic sigh. I can understand now. I see it now. And we're going to be able to rejoice there because we're going to be able to see the end in light of the beginning. Now, now that, that's kind of an addendum, that's kind of a parenthesis that Paul inserts here in, in establishing the fact that there's so many of these things that, so imp that impress us so much are just temporary. They're going to pass away. But there is one thing that endures everything, and that's love. And love is preeminent. You know why it's preeminent? Why do you need faith when you get to heaven? Because you're going to have all knowledge. If you have all knowledge, you won't need faith. And why do you need hope when you get to heaven? 
Because when you get to heaven, there won't be anything to hope for. You already have it all. So that the preeminence is love because it is in heaven that that love has its perfect expression and its deepest meaning. And there's where we'll celebrate it together. See, that's why it's preeminent. Now there's an application from verses. There, there are four applications. I want you to get these. Verses 1 through 3, love's essential presence. Now the question is, a, there's an application, there's a statement and a question. The question is this. Do you consider love absolutely essential? Do you consider love absolutely essential? Now, now suppose that your family members... Suppose your family members could be questioned, queried privately, and the information they shared would never be public. Do you think the members of your family would say privately, the most essential part of our relationship is how very much He loves me? Do you think that can be said of this church? I mean, we got pink bathrooms, and we got pink carpet and 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 and, and moss color. It's good. It's glorious. Beautiful. We got the finest kitchen in town, and we got a great auditorium and a fantastic uh, pipe organ, and we got this beautiful building. We got all this. You know, we have all these wonderful programs. I mean, we're going to Vancouver this summer, Canada. You think that, that the people of this world point to that as the essential and most powerful and dynamic quality, the, the supreme quality of this church, or is it that they look at this church and say, the one factor about that church is they love people. Let me tell you what. Those pink bathrooms and that green carpet and that pipe organ and this program and this auditorium is not worth a flip if there's not if the essential being of this church is not love. You think love is essential? From verses 4 through 7 Love's characteristics, there are 15 of them. The question is this, do you express your love? Do you express your love? Does it come through? Are you embarrassed to say, I love you? Kids, do you ever tell mom and dad you love them? Be careful now, because some of them, you know, be sure that they... They had a, their, their hearts are, you know, I mean, we don't want anybody having a heart attack. But, you know, you know when you do it, be, do, you tell, do you tell your husband, your wife, that you love him or her? How long has it been since you've expressed your love? We're so afraid, you know, to touch somebody, put our arm around somebody. Let me tell you what. In the midst of all of this, this the guy called me this week. I'm not going to call his name, but he sang a solo tonight. He called me up on the phone. He said, 
He said, Gerald, I just want to tell you, I know it's been a tough week. I just want to tell you that I love you. I appreciate what you're doing. You, are you able to express your love? From verses 8 through 12, love is permanent. It endures. The question is this. Does your love fade in and out? Does it? I mean, does it up, is it up and down, you know? Does it alter when its alteration finds? I mean, does it change? Does it fade in and out? Or is it permanent? Does it endure? How many conditions we put on our love? I love you if you'll do what I want you to. I love you if you're lovable. I mean, do you just love, period? Love's preeminence is the rest of it. And the question is this. Does love come to the surface of your life more than any other emotion? Ooh. We almost got by without stepping on some toes. Does love come to the surface of your life more than any other emotion? How about anger? Is that more likely to come to the surface of your life? How about jealousy? Is that more likely to come to the surface of your life? How about impatience? Is that more likely to come to the surface of your life? What is most likely to be the preeminent emotion in your life? Is it really love? Now, you need to understand that he takes 1 Corinthians 13 and he sets it right in the context of chapters 12 and 14. Chapter 12, where he talks about the gifts that are to be exercised in the body, church, the church body. And chapter 14, that where, he, where there is this tremendous debate over the superior gifts. And he sets this magnificent chapter right in the middle and he says, You can have all the gifts of the Holy Spirit in your church and exercise them. And you can have these gifts that you consider superior that kind of sets you apart as a kind of super Christian, you think. Let me tell you, he's saying, the most excellent way is just to love. Let's bow our heads and pray.